Thank you, Jesus. As, um, as we were singing and worshiping, I thought of uh, that song that Danny was singing. It really touched my heart. It said, Lord, I come into your holy place. I stand in awe of your cleansing grace. And I thought, well, we're, we're not in a holy place this morning. Well, it's got a lot of holes, but it's not exactly a holy place. But that's not true because we are in a holy place. He wasn't talking about entering a building there. What is the holy place? It is the context of relationships that have been ordered and composed by God and can rightly be called the temple where the Spirit of God would dwell. We are the lively stones. We are being built together to form a spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we have come together of one mind and one accord, then we have come into a holy place. And he has promised there he'll be in the midst of us in this holy place. I was also impacted by when Helen was singing and and the song said, you have no rival, you have no equal. Yours is the name above all names. And that's what those who have come to be baptized are declaring today. Because prior to that renunciation of human sovereignty in repentance and that burial ceremony in baptism whereby we espouse only one authority in name, prior to that, he has a rival. He has more than one. He has as many rivals as there are people on the face of the earth. And that's the crux of what we're dethroning. That's the crux of what we're burying in baptism. Is the inner rival that seeks its own will in conflict with God's. We talked about it last week that Human sovereignty expresses itself as human will, and human will primarily is human choice. And so trust represents the most potent form of dethroning. To truly come to a place where you step toward an unknown future, unknown outcomes, even in part a God who you cannot know with your carnal knower, but must know through the Spirit, when all of those variables are in place and yet you can still grope toward Him and find Him, though He be not far from any one of us, that represents the greatest hallmark, the greatest proof of repentance. And the pledge that we're going to make, that the brothers and sisters are going to make here today, Peter calls this the pledge of a good conscience. And the writer of Hebrews says, we had our consciences sprinkled clean. Amen. Our, our, our bodies washed with pure water and our, conscience, our consciences were cleaned by the blood of Christ. Meaning that prior to a full revelation and epiphany of his love at Calvary, we had suspicion dirtying our consciences. Dirtying our awareness, our, conscience, our consciousness of God. 
But through his love and through his sacrifice, a cleansing is supposed to take place. We're supposed to stand there and say, Oh, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the sons of God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him to them, he gave power. He would give me power. He would give me authority. He would give me the right to become a son of God. And, and, and that, that revelation of his nature, that revelation of his nature through the cross does a cleansing, does a washing, takes away the suspicion and gives us that clear conscience. And then at baptism with a clear conscience, which is to say with, a, with an unfiltered, unqualified, pure trust, we say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Thank you, Lord. And we, we are immersed by his name. Every single time in the Bible, when they baptized people, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his, in his name. And it is remission of sins because it is removal of identity. We are losing our identity as an autonomous competitor with God. And we are being bought with a price. We are accepting the purchase that was made at Calvary. And we are saying, I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is truly gain. Amen. And his identity is now being placed upon us. His righteous character his powerful name. Thank you, Jesus. His right standing, his justification. Only one man was justified in the spirit, preached among the nations, seen by angels and received up into glory. And that's the one who we're immersing ourselves into. This is not a one-off thing. We can promise something here at the baptistry and live out something different in our daily life. And, and really make what happens here a meaningless fraud for, that just compounds our judgment. We have to get up every day and we have to say, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, you have no rival, you have no equal, yours is the name above all names. Thank you, Jesus. In our daily life, not just in this moment, thank you, Lord. I want to ask you a question. Does the devil fear the church? I don't think he fears the Babylonian mixture that poses no threat to his kingdom. But he has set about over the millennia to establish a stranglehold, a total sovereignty over the earth. And if Jesus came heralding the promise of another kingdom, then he came to start a competition with the devil. My dad showed us that he even stole the word gospel from the lips of Caesar Augustus. It was used as the herald of a political dynasty that would be universal, bringing peace and prosperity to all peoples of all nations. Caesar was the first one to be said to work miracles and heal men. But Jesus came and he plucked that promise from the mouth of the lion, and he put it in the mission of a lamb, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, if the kingdom of God is at hand, then Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, 
then the kingdom of God is at hand. He said if God, what he was basically saying is, if God is at work, if miracles still happen, if the power and presence of the Spirit is still a transformative reality, a delivering reality, then the kingdom of God is at hand. He was tying the advent of the kingdom to the reality of spiritual power on the earth. That's why the devil has set about to convince everybody of cessationism, that all the power of the Spirit has ceased. Thank you, Jesus. What did Paul say? The kingdom of God does not consist in word and tongue, but what? In power and truth. In power, he said. He said, when I come to you, I will find out your power. And the ultimate power that we're supposed to have is authority over all the works of the evil one. In Luke 10, Jesus said, Behold, I give you power to tread over all the authority of the evil one. And so if we look at our lives and we see the works of the the evil one, there we see the authority of the evil one and thus the kingdom of the evil one. We see the kingdom of darkness. But Paul said he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Where the devil's will is at work, there his kingdom is coming and his will is being done. Where the devil's authority is at work, there his lordship is ensconced. We know that he reigns through the fear of death, otherwise known as self-preservation, but that love is the antidote to this disease It casts out all fear. So does the devil fear the church? Well, he should fear the church. Let me ask you this. What does he most fear in the church? What is the devil most intent on undermining and preventing from ever taking place in the church? I don't think he fears individuals because I don't think we're all that scary in ourselves and by ourselves. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He doesn't say, upon this rock, I'll put a loner family and they'll stand against the tide. That's not what he said. He didn't say, upon this rock, I'll raise up a mighty individual and he'll sure be impressive and he'll beat the devil at at his own game. That's not what he said. He said, upon this rock I'll build a church. The very word church means called out ones. Every time we evoke the word, we're talking about an exodus. Coming out of one thing and into another. Coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, what does the devil most fear? Well, we would know what the devil most fear if we would know what provides for our greatest power. What provides for our greatest power as a kingdom, as a church? What is it, brothers and sisters? Everybody said unity. Why do we say that? Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he also said in John 17... Make them one as thou, Father, art in me and I in in thee. 
that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. He was praying that God would be one in us and we would be one with God in each other and this would be the proof that God sent Jesus. Now, what was Jesus? Jesus was in himself the reconciliation between two estranged parties, the divine and the mortal, man and God. Amen? Everybody with me? And so he was this proof, this walking, breathing, loving, serving, healing proof that human beings could be united with God. And he prayed that we would have the same oneness that he had with God. He said that you would love them, he says to God, that you would love them with the same love, and I quote, that you have loved me. Every time God spoke from heaven to Jesus, he said, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Operative in, in whom I'm well pleased. That's my son in whom I'm well pleased. We see the love that the father had for Jesus and the trust and obedience Jesus had for the father. In John 17, Jesus asks, please love them with the same kind of love that you love me. And please make the oneness in them and with us the same as we already enjoy. And he said, by this the world will know that God sent Jesus. Why? Why do you think the world would know that God sent Jesus when they came into the midst of a people who were one with God and one with each other? You think it's just they would have this arbitrary insight. You know what? I think God sent Jesus. You think that's what it was? I don't think so. You see, I think in Jesus lived all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. But I think in us is supposed to dwell individually a teaspoon measure of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. I think he wants to give us his spirit until as a corporate mosaic, we don't become a conversational, theological, propositional proof, but we become an experiential proof when people start to encounter the presence of God in a people on whatever small portion, they suddenly know it had to be possible that God made all his fullness once dwell in a man and reconciled humanity to himself in that man. And maybe that man is now a corporate body that I can be part of where he could be in me and I could be in him. So when he says that the world may know, he's not saying that they may imagine something about the past. He's saying that they may experience something. <sighs> that is proof of what happened and is still happening. Thank you, Jesus. What did the Sanhedrin say when, when John and Peter started talking to him under the power of the anointing? Said that they, they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. You see the same DNA, the same thoughts, the same words, the same unction and anointing, the same grace and authority that he had, they had. 
Amen. And it was not an abstract, imaginary, conceptual proof. It was an experiential proof. This is what we want the world to see in this place. God, make us a living proof that Jesus was sent by God and that oneness between spirit and flesh is still possible, that people can come into submission to the spirit, that they can still have him in them and they can still be in him. Thank you, Jesus. So the devil fears unity. Why does the devil fear unity? Because as long as Solomon's temple remained a collection of materials in various places of construction around the Judean uh, kingdom, there was no glory, there was no power, and flesh could go wherever it wanted, right? But we are told that just as with Moses' tabernacle, when the temple was configured and assembled exactly according to pattern, the glory of God filled that temple. We are told in Ephesians 2 that we corporately are to be God's temple, God's house. Now Jesus in John 2.19 said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. And then John says they did not understand that he was speaking to them about his body. But then speaking about his body, Paul says, You are the temple of God, a place where God wants to live and dwell. Elsewhere, he says he wants to walk among us. The tabernacle of God is with men. That's what the promise was in John 1. The word became flesh and pitched his tent, his tabernacle among us. But the tabernacle that is now is supposed to be this corporate assembly of brothers and sisters who have taken off their crowns and renounced their lordship and stopped being the rivals of him and said, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done through us. We, you have no rival, you have no equal. Yours is the name above every name. And so I'm saying that the church has been in a state that is not dissimilar to the manner in which the temple was constructed. The temple was not built on site. It was crafted off site in various separated workplaces and shops. And when the materials had reached completion, the temple was assembled on site. But the hard work of chipping and carving and crafting and piecing together, largely took place elsewhere. It said there was no hammer heard, no saw. There was none of that. When they brought it together, it was a quick work. But that's what's going to happen in the dispensation of the fullness of times. God is going to bring together all things that are in Christ under one head. And all these Christian movements and all these ideas and all these gifts, all the the beauty and the precision of the temple that has been scattered in the last days is going to be assembled. God's going to bring it together. There's going to be a unity. Thank you, Jesus. And it's going to be a unity that is even greater than the unity at the beginning. But we know what happened in the unity at the beginning, don't we? Power came from on high. 
and filled the whole place where they were staying. Amen. And fire came from heaven and anointing fell on cowards and preaching went forth and 3,000 were added in one day and great signs and wonders and the church was multiplied and it spread from house to house and there was no stopping it because they were all of one mind and one accord. Every time they got into a house, it seemed the house started to shake. That's because the spiritual house couldn't fit inside the confines of a man-made building. Amen. And the house that God is building now, it won't fit in any organization. It won't fit in anything made by man. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be a movement that's going to make us all marvel. Amen. And what the devil fears most is unity. He is terrified of unity. Just like the Lord saw in Genesis 11, we're told that man began to build a tower and he said, the Lord looked down from heaven and he says, if they agree, whatever they put their mind to will be possible for them. In the same way, the devil looks at all the constituent pieces of the body of Christ and he says, let's just keep some disagreement. Let's just get some independence in there because if these guys agree, says the devil, nothing they put their mind to will be impossible. We just got to keep them competing. We just got to keep them bitter. Demons insert a little injection of independence right there. Yep, that's it. American dream. Good. All right. That one stopped. Okay. All right. Oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Somebody's starting to really humble themselves. Let's, let's make them envious over here, please. Quick. He, he, he looks at the church and he's determined to prevent the one thing that releases power. The one thing that makes the reality of Christ not a concept, but an experience for the world. Where they come and they say, I didn't encounter a brilliant man or an anointed teacher. I didn't encounter an anointed singer. I met the body of Christ. I encountered a people who were united one under one head. Thank you, Jesus. This is why Paul said, make my joy complete. Paul had joy, but it was partial joy. It was almost joy. It was joy that just couldn't quite dance, couldn't quite exude, couldn't quite exult. Amen. He said, please take this excitement that I've got, make it complete by being of one mind, having one purpose, working together, harmonizing together. I believe that's how the Lord Jesus looks at us, at his body, not just in this place, but everywhere. And he says, will you make my joy complete? Where are the people? When is the time when we're going to set aside our ambitions and we're going to set aside our trips and we're going to set aside our carnal desires and certainly our idols, certainly our sins, certainly our wretched, corrupt, grasping, self-seeking but also all the other ways that we adulterate even the things of God and we're going to set it aside and we're going to say, Lord, I want to be hidden. Amen. My life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul was fulfilling the prayer of John 17 when he made that statement. The world can hide an individual. Maybe that individual will do a great sacrifice. Maybe that individual will preach a great message or love greatly and, and his light will burst forth and some will rejoice in it. Some will praise God for it. But eventually, that individual light will get reabsorbed into a, a broader culture of darkness. 
And we're supposed to shine as lights, but the light that God envisions for this dark age, He described in the gospel when He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. But then He, he was even more clear when He said, You are called to be the light of the world. And then He described it, A city set upon a hill that cannot be hid. And His implication was that a city high up on a hill couldn't be hid, but a lot of other versions of light could be hid. Maybe not hid from everyone or everywhere, but God is trying to shine a light to everyone everywhere. Do you follow me? So it doesn't diminish all the individuals who have worked valiantly for the Lord and whose shoulders we stand on as we press closer to Him. Amen? But the the end-time work is going to be a composition The end-time work is going to be a city. It's not going to be an individual. It says Jerusalem is a city compacted together. I read this passage, and I'd like to read it from the Amplified, if I may, but this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling. What does that mean? You know, we can excel here, or we can excel at that time, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying always excelling. And what that means is in a constant state of improvement, in a constant state of change that goes closer and closer to the high mark, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, (laughs) immovable from what? From constantly excelling. (laughs) So he's kind of saying, be immovable from constant movement forward. (laughs) Immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Listen to this. Always doing your best and doing more than is needed. Being continually aware that your labor even to the point of exhaustion, I'm not adding anything, in the Lord is not futile or wasted. It is never without purpose. So he says, he says, I don't want you to move. I don't want you to stray. I don't want you to drift. I want you to stay in this state of mind that is always excelling. The root of excel, I think, means to go beyond. God doesn't want us to lose ground, brothers and sisters. He doesn't want us to lose our sense of His purpose, our sense of His eternal cause. He doesn't want us to become self-seeking. He doesn't want us to lose what it means to sacrifice. I read this passage and I thought, wow, this is exactly where we're at. Genesis 26, and Isaac, after Abraham died, reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. I want us to look around at the wells that God has given us. Wellsprings of kindness, wellsprings of sacrifice, wells of honor, wells of faith, 
wells of joy and service. Thank you, Jesus. And I, I want us to ask God, Lord, have I let any Philistines fill in any of the wells that once flowed in my life or in this church? If I had, we're here to dig them out again. We're here to reopen old wells. Amen. We're here to give them the same names God gave them when he first opened them up for us. Don't you know the spirit of attrition, entropy, sluggishness, complacency, just wants debris to crowd into some hard-dug reservoirs that God has given us over the years. We want to serve notice on the devil. If there are any wells that are stopped up, we're not going to rest until they're unstopped. We're going to redig them. You know, we don't have a fair because it's a monetary success. It's been that less than not. <laughs> and we don't have a fair because it's a big blast. Although it is that, it's also a lot of hard work and sacrifice. We have a fair because God is worthy. And we want to say that he has given us a life and a wholeness and a joy in each other and with him that is worth shining like a city on a hill to a, to a world who needs hope. The reason we have a fair is because we love God and we love those who need the same hope that has animated our own hearts. We don't have a fair because it's easy. We don't have a fair because it's fun and we don't have a fair because it makes money. We have a fair because in our inadequate, clumsy, imperfect way, we're trying to say he is king and we thank him for the life he's given and we offer an olive branch of hope that you can have this life also. Brothers and sisters, it's about the eternal purpose. It's about God demonstrating his wisdom. Nothing is ultimately satisfying if it's all about you because you have an expiration date. So whatever is totally invested in you is totally wasted. Only what lives on for an eternal purpose of an eternal God going from generation to generation is worth giving your life to. The only thing I want in life is to know, is to be known for loving Christ. To build his church, to love his bride, and make his name known far and wide. For this cause I live, for this cause I'll die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. All I once held dear I leave behind. For my joy is this, the cause of Christ. He is all my soul will prize, regardless of the joy or trial. When agonizing questions rise, in Jesus all my hope abides. It is not for fame that I desire, nor stature in my brother's eye. I pray it's said about my life that I live more to build your name than mine. I'm just going to give one, that one more time. The only thing I want in life is to, is to be known for loving Christ, to build his church, to love his bride, and make his name known far and wide. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. 
We do it because we want to partake of the glory that fills the temple when it's assembled according to plan. And we do it because we want to shine the light coming from the windows of that temple city to a world wandering in darkness, wondering if there's an alternative. Do you care about that? Is that why you live? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's scare the devil with real unity. You know, Paul said in in Philippians, and I'm just going to read a little bit here, and I'm going to wrap this up. Paul said in Philippians, he said, Philippians, you know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, you remember what took him to Macedonia? He was in jail, right? He says, when I left Macedonia, no church but you partnered with me in the matter of giving and receiving. I know he's talking about financial support here, and I'm not. That's not my point. But he called the Philippians partners because they joined with Paul in saying this is a purpose worth joining ranks for. This is a purpose worth working for, worth investing in. More than 35 years ago, God gave a vision Through a man of great vision, he gave a vision. It was a vision of a light, a city on a hill. It was a vision of how to bring our schooling together and our children together and our labors together to celebrate the kingdom. And for 30-some years, how many years have we been doing a fair religious side? This will be 34 years. For 34 years, we've done something unheard of because we made ourselves partners with that man of vision in bringing that hope to people who needed to see it. How many experienced the fair as a formative step in coming to God? Raise your hand. Look around you. Look around you. Thank you, Jesus. It's more than I expected. We're going to baptize some today who raised their hands. Amen. Sister Kay wouldn't be with us without the fair. The Clarks are here, aren't they? Wasn't it the fair? Brother Joe, it was the fair, right? Amen. Guys, is it worth it to shine a light? Guys, is it worth it to be united? Is it worth it to scare the devil with putting aside all ambition and coming together like never before? Is it worth it to be a partner, to invest what it takes in your time, in your effort, in your prayers, in your consecration, to let this light be pure? Amen. He goes on. You know, Jesus said, before I go on, Jesus said that whoever gives to a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And I think that's what Paul was saying. He was saying, you're my partners. I didn't do this by myself. We did this together. Before my dad passed, whenever anybody would say to him, I'm just so amazed at what you've done, he would hang his head and he would say, oh, it it was a joint effort. I, I did not do this. The Lord did this and it was through all of his people. And I could have never, whether it was about the literature or anything else, because he knew he was just a member of a partnership, the body of Christ. Are we still part of that partnership? Amen. For even while I was in Thessalonica, you provided for my needs again and again. Not that I am seeking a gift, but I am looking for the fruit that may be credited to your account. 
Paul felt like their participation in practical matters that facilitated spiritual witness was the fruit that God was going to credit to their account. There's a way to serve. There's a way to put on this fair that puts fruit on your tree and that God credits that fruit to your account. I don't want to do it grudgingly, which he says is unacceptable. I want to do it as fruit that can be credited to my account. He said, I have all I need and more now that I have received your gifts from Epaphroditus. Your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. He, he quotes himself from Romans 12. And he says, your practical contributions, your willingness to participate is an acceptable sacrifice, an offering, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The end of it was glory. The glory of God filled the temple. Thank you, Jesus. He told the Corinthians that he had failed them by not requiring them to participate. You know, God hadn't failed us in that way. I'm thankful. He's required us to participate, but not grudgingly. Nobody has to. If it doesn't come from your heart, you seriously don't have to. I speak for Brother Josiah even. Can't I, Brother Josiah? Nobody has to. But brothers and sisters, for the sake of the kingdom, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Let them see that our Father is alive. He's living in his people who live to do his will. Paul told, the, told Titus, he said, our people, I kind of liked that. I kind of liked that he called the church our people. Our people must learn to devote themselves Devote means that, that which is sacrificed to a God. Must learn to sacrifice themselves to good works in order to meet the pressing need of others. It's not just about the fair, brothers and sisters. We cannot lose our concern and our care for one another. Some of the first generation are more generous with far less than some of us in the second generation with far more. Don't let us be outdone by them in giving after God has blessed us so much. Don't ever let your, your contributions become a tax. Don't ever let it be seen as some grudging obligation. Ask yourself, am I still a partner? Do I still get to share in, 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 in partnering with the gospel and the witness? When I was a child, not even two years old, my in-laws, Brother Dennis and Sister Faye, had just come to God. They were in the church for less than a year and they didn't know I was going to be their future son-in-law. But back in that day, in the late 80s, they had just built their dream home. This story that I'm about to tell could be told a hundred times and more by all of those of the first generation. They had just built their dream home. But when my parents, who they barely knew, would travel with a large family from Colorado to minister for extended months in Texas, my in-laws would vacate. They weren't my in-laws then. These new people would vacate their home for up to nine months and let my parents live there free of charge so that the gospel could go forth from Austin. Now ask yourself what we would have been without that ministry. We wouldn't be here. 
That was the Texas church in its beginning. And so don't say, this man did that and that man did this. Say, we were partners. The Collinses were partners. Everyone who brought a meal was a partner. Everyone who helped out. Everyone who bore a load or helped meet a spiritual or practical problem. You were partners. Everybody who showed up and helped with the AC or fixed something that broke in the yard, you were partners. We're all in this together. And God may call us over here to serve in a practical way or over there to give a gift of the Spirit or a word of knowledge, but we're all together. And everything shares the same value. I want a prophet's reward even if I only give a cup of water. Do you? Thank you, Jesus. Then my in-laws deeded that house to the church so that all of its equity would go toward the down payment of this property. Amen. I praise God for the prosperity that he's giving us, brothers and sisters, but please don't lose the plot. Please don't make it all about yourself. Please don't pervert it into self-idolatry. Let's keep, let's make it about everyone else. Let's make it about our brothers and sisters. Let's lay down our lives. He told us to stop stealing in this passage. He said, I want you to stop stealing and work hard with your hands so that you can be rich and show the world how to prosper. First falsehood, three and two. <laughs> and what did he say? I want you to stop stealing. That was true. I want you to work hard with your hands. Why? So that you may have something to give to others who have need. The purpose of prosperity is generosity. The purpose of blessing is cooperation. It's to give as good stewards of the manifold grace of God one to another. Amen. I don't want to lose the unity. I want to make the devil scared. I want to be a partner in the gospel. I want to be a partner in the witness. Amen. And I want, I want to be part of a people. Even if I'm not seen, I don't need to be seen. I'm a partner. Amen. Behind the scenes. I want to be part of a people that is a visceral, living, experiential, tangible proof that God incarnated himself in mankind and he still lives in his people. His spirit still indwells us. Jesus was God, but he's called us to be part of his body. Thank you, Jesus. When you were talking about the, the Philippians and how Paul was writing to them, about partnering with him in the gospel, and he's really appealing to them to continue in his absence. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, do everything without complaining, without arguing. In other words, do everything in this like-minded, one spirit of unity. Amen. That you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let it shine on through me. Amen.
You know, the entire time when Brother Ossie was talking, I was thinking too, it just kind of kept coming over me more and more as he kept sharing. It's just this feeling of how seldomly we read in scriptures of a people delighting the heart of God or surprising him. You know, instead, it, it feels like this unending account of God with expectations and moving in power, but then just such an inadequate response from the people, you know, and, and you, you get some of these passages and they're even hard to read, you know, because you feel the shame that's being given to God and the dishonor that's coming to him. It's like, I don't know, sometimes in Jeremiah where it talks about God's heart breaking, I can't believe it's come to this, you know, how did I rescue this people out of Egypt and now I'm casting you out? I mean, how has it really come to this, you know? And, um, you know, he tells Moses, keep the people back from, from coming in. And he says, they don't press in, Lord. You know, and it's like, you just get this feeling that's like, when is a people going to surprise God, you know? But then in the construction of Solomon's temple, which was a theme today, you know, it, 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 everything gets the right way. And then Solomon does his dedication. And after the dedication, it says they brought in 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And here all of a sudden you read these words on the page and it says the bronze altar was not sufficient for the sacrifice. You know, God had given the specificity of that design for this altar. And he said, maybe if they'd feel this, it would be quite a delight. But when it came time for the sacrifice and consecration of this work, God stepped back and said, it's not sufficient, this altar in size for what the people have brought from their hearts, you know? And it's like, I just feel that more than anything is, is that, can we be a people that would delight God's heart and surprise him by what he finds inside of us that wants to reciprocate all that he's done for us and how thankful we are to be his people and how unworthy we feel he is, or how unworthy we feel we are and how worthy we feel he is of more worship and more sacrifice and more praise that the world has not given him what is deserving to him and that we want to fill the gap as his people. Amen.
train.